Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fia Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Fia. How's it going? All right, thank you. And I, I would ask you what you've been up to, but I already know. Yeah, as though this <laughs> were my personal diary. I'm going to tell <laughs> exactly. you one of the things I got up to this week. <laughs> just one of the things. Okay, so shall I just go ahead and tell everyone what we have lined up? Yeah, why not? Okay, well, coming up on this week's show, ask anyone who knows a little about Russia what they would cite as the most important date in the country's history, and they probably wouldn't say 1837. And yet, one book suggests we can't really comprehend Russia without understanding this year. Our reviewer, Douglas Smith, will join us to explain. The Beatle Paul McCartney and the poet, author and editor Paul Muldoon, no stranger to this podcast, have joined forces on a book of McCartney's lyrics. Lucy Dallas, who I don't think I'm wrong to call a superfan, went along to hear them discuss it at an event held at the Royal Festival Hall and will tell us all about it. But first, last week, the South African novelist Damon Galgut claimed the Booker Prize for his most recent novel, The Promise, an episodic tale of South Africa spanning three decades and four funerals told through the lens of one family. The promise was described by the Booker judges as a spectacular demonstration of how the novel can make us see and think afresh, and by Nat Segnet in the TLS as magisterial and heart-stopping. Damon is the author of nine novels and four plays. He's won various awards, including the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and had previously been shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice, which is to say he is no stranger to critical adulation, awards ceremonies or even the odd book sale but rightly or wrongly winning the booker is a little bit different toby lishtig began by asking him does this change everything i'm sort of in the process of finding that out but uh, my very strong sense is that uh, yeah it does it does um you know i'm only into day two so you should perhaps speak to me a little further down the line but um all indications are that things are not going to be quite the same Let's jump straight into the book. The Promise concerns the Swartz family. It follows them from the sort of the, the dying years of apartheid in the kind of mid to late 1980s to the, to the near present um, uh, with the with res- resignation of Jacob Zuma uh, in, in, in 2018, I think. Let's talk about them. What, what kind of family are they? Firstly, they're a very dysfunctional family. Um, but I guess more specifically, uh, a number of commentators have assumed that I was writing about an Afrikaans family. That's not actually uh, what I intended. I intended it to be mixed um, in the sense that uh, Rachel, the mother of the family, is comes from a Jewish heritage, uh, therefore much more likely to be English speaking. Um, but she marries an Afrikaans man, uh, Mani Swart, so that the children are probably um, bilingual, um, a little bit a little bit of a mix of languages and definitely a, a mix of creeds as the book sort of explores. Um, you know, this, this sort of mixture is absolutely typical of, uh, well, it's typical of lots of South Africans, but very specifically typical of white South Africans. Um, you know, I don't know what the impression that 
UK readers might have of um, white South Africans, but you know, we, we don't break down into very different definite blocks. We're a mix. We're a, we're a mash and a mix, and I really wanted the family to reflect that. And in, and in fact, the, the the mother Rachel, she goes back to she goes back to her sort of her original religion, as it were, in Judaism and Jewish culture towards the end of her life, doesn't she? So she that seemed quite overt to me that she was, you know, moving away from the more um, you know Africana side of her family. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, in a, in a sense, it's um, partly re- related to my own uh, roots. My mother, well, she was born, you know, into a traditional Christian household, but she converted to Judaism when she married my father, who's Jewish, with the intention of raising us all under a single religion. She said she thought that would be better for us. But in fact, my father's not a very observant Jew. Um, and my mother never really followed through. So although I was converted to Judaism at age two, I have a certificate to prove it. I was never raised um, in the religion. I can't speak Hebrew and so on. So um, yeah, I was, I, I was drawing on my own sort of sense, to, sense of mixed up origins, I guess, um, in portraying the marriage, although, you know, jumbling it up a bit. Um, you, you actually wrote um, uh, very movingly for, for us, for the TLS, um, uh, in part about your upbringing. Um, about a year ago, you were reviewing Andrew Harding's portrait of South Africa. Uh, These are not good people, his, his sort of his analysis of this horrible double murder and what it said about South Africa. And you talk a little bit about your upbringing there and the Africana side of it. You, 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 you speak of a you, you sort of you, you talk about violence and you talk about learning to associate from a young age brute force with it. I think your phrase was a certain kind of Africana mentality, a frontier mentality. And do the, does Marnie, for example, the kind of Africana side of the, the, the Swart family, does, do you feel he has that mentality? Is that, is that one thing you're trying to, to explore? Um, well, what I, what I wrote about for the TLS was perhaps a little more extreme. Um, I wrote about my stepfather. My, after divorcing my father, my mother remarried um, an Afrikaans man who raised us, um, yeah, with a fairly violent hand at home. Um, so, you know, violence was a very disturbing presence in my upbringing. Um, we had to speak Afrikaans at home um, and, you know, we were very often at the receiving end of his fist if we didn't reply in Afrikaans. Marnie, um, the head of my fictional household, is, well, he's certainly not described as being that extreme. Um, I would hope that I conjure an atmosphere of violence in Pretoria from, from that time um, because it was, you know, very much in the air, if not always um, physically visible. Um, but yeah, I was again, you know, uh, drawing on my home roots to create these various aspects of the family. So Marnie Swart uh, isn't, you know, he's certainly not a literal depiction of my stepfather. He's a much gentler version um, and also much more religious, I think, than my stepfather ever was. But, but yeah, violence certainly hums in the background throughout the book and you you know you've got so you've got the three children you've got Rachel and Marnie and you've got their children Anton, Astrid and Amor and Anton in the in the opening scene episode I suppose is he's he's in the army isn't he in his late teens and he's had a he's committed a very violent incident which he wants to move away from. At that time um, in South Africa it was compulsory for young men to do two years of well, military service is what they called it, but you know you were conscripted um, mostly against your will, um, and you know you were basically uh, forced to participate in you know South Africa's racial war, uh, um, which was being fought up on the border of uh, the northern border of what's now Namibia, um, and then later in internally in South Africa in the townships when unrest was being quelled by the by the apartheid government. So. Um, yeah, Anton in the book uh, is actively participating in the in the latter. He's he's in the townships and he shoots a woman in an almost arbitrary moment, uh, without really thinking about it. And that casual deed of violence haunts him really for the rest of his life. Um, I did do two years in the Air Force, but I'm happy to say I did not um, come anywhere close to that sort of situation. Friends of mine did, though. I mean, it was just. 
part of the national culture and consciousness that um, you know as a young as a young person with no real defenses you very often find yourself in these extreme situations fighting for your life or killing other people uh, and it's just, it's oddly something that's not very much discussed in South, um, South Africa not not since it's a sort of undigested part of South African history I guess that's really interesting because it's such a lived history isn't it I mean you know if you're if you're of a certain age you will have as you say you would have had that experience and that if that goes for everyone how can that not seep into into a national culture That's, well it yeah. does to some so to some degree i guess but i'm always struck by how much america um obsesses over its uh vietnam story and what that did to the american psyche there's nothing comparable uh in south african art and culture occasional films like the stick about you know the border war a bit of documentary footage but by and large that experience remains um under the surface I think it's part of um, the general South African condition, actually, that all kinds of violence and trauma remains undiscussed and therefore unprocessed, um, uh, which, you know, any psychologist will tell you leads to further acts of violence. Um, We are a very, very violent society. I think um, in almost every way, you know, the barometers off the charts and uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's stuff that's never been talked about, never been aired um, and certainly never been exorcised. And you, you certainly get that sense of, of, of the kind of the repression and the unspoken within your family. And you've got these, you know, you've got these three, three children um, who are very, very different, aren't they? And they're not, they're not especially close as the years evolve. I mean, one of them drifts off, um, You've got Anton, we talked about a bit, Astrid and Amor. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the two sisters then and how, how they figure within this, this uh, selection of individuals? Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's a dysfunctional family. So, um, you know, one of my concerns in writing this book was um, in trying, I think, I think, maybe only in a limited way to give some sense of what it means to be female in South African society. Cause um, you know, the traditional roles are mostly very um, uncomfortable, I guess. I mean, I, I grew up with, uh, well, it's very patriarchal. Let me put it that way. The entire society uh, was very, very patriarchal, white apartheid mentality. Um, and in that sort of hierarchy, women were expected to, you know, um, play the part of homemakers to bring more children into the world and certainly not to be, you know, leaders or thinkers for themselves. So uh, that makes for some uncomfortable representations of womanhood, I guess. Um, maybe the most um, obvious of those is Astrid, the middle sister, whose obsession with, is primarily with how she looks. Uh, and with her fears, keeping herself safe, but she is not very engaged with uh, the politics or the realities of the society around her. Amor, the youngest sister, um, is, is, I hope, much more enigmatic. Um, If the book has any kind of moral center, it's her. And she, um, she's the one, because there's this promise, this unfulfilled promise at the heart of the story, and um, Amor is the only person in the family who um, has any kind of conscience about that. The person who continually brings it up over a span of 30 or 40 years. Why have we not, you know, followed through on that promise? So in that sense, she's a kind of a moral pointer. Um, I was wary of making her too much so, of creating some sort of unlikely heroine. I mistrust the notion that the world's divided into good and bad people. So although I think Amor has good impulses, I try to uh, make her saintliness a little bit mysterious and opaque. There's certainly something very avoidant about her, isn't there? And, and I, I guess that's, you know, it's clear. Well, quite she a... certainly doesn't force the issue, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think in a more traditional novel the you know the heroic act would be to bring bring the issue to a head and then um set her up as some kind of example in terms of that but that's that's not where i was going she was struck by lightning when she was very young and several other members in the family say oh there's something wrong with her you know she's kind of damaged and uh it is possible that there's something wrong with her i wanted to leave that possibility open I also like the idea that, um, you know, from a very young age, regardless of whether it's true in inverted commas or not, she's been cast that way. And once as a child, you're cast in a family in a certain way, it's very, very difficult to be seen as anything other than different from that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, 
you know, I think perceptions of Amor do change through the book because, of course, it's told in four sections um, and the sections sort of leap forward by more, more or less a decade um, in each case. So the first time we see Amor, she's actually a sort of a, a bit of a pudgy teenager. And the next time she's transformed, as people often do in early adulthood, into somebody very, very striking. She's quite a threat to her older sister when she becomes sort of striking and beautiful, isn't she? Seeing as her older sister is obsessed with how she looks, yeah, that, that is threat to her but then that beauty fades as again it usually does youthful beauty um you know sort of fades into something much more ordinary um in her middle years so yeah i guess perceptions of her do change and even her older sister later reflects that oh maybe you know maybe her silence is actually a you know a kind of attentiveness she becomes somebody you want to tell things to one of the most noteworthy features um, of, of the promise is, is the narrative voice, which I think that many critics have picked up on. You're, you're extremely playful with voice. You dip in and out of the characters' heads. Uh, even, you know, even the in- incidental ones, you chop and change from the first to the third person. Um, in his TLS piece, Nat Segnet talked about the narration operating at a spectral remove, which I, I thought captured the sense quite well. It's very filmic. How easy was it for you to find that voice? I sort of think every, every book has its own voice. That's not just the obvious um, decision about whether to to write in the first or the third person. Um, That's, of course, an element, but it's only one element. When I talk about the voice of a book, uh, you know, are you writing in the present tense, the past tense? Um, What's the tone? What's the kind of range of language? So all all of that sort of has to find its way, at least uh, with me. I know know sometimes with writers, uh, you get the gift um, of an obvious kind of voice, the, the the point of view from which it should be spoken, but um, it usually takes me a while. In this case, I did begin the book um, in a much more traditional uh, sort of third-person way. I knew I wanted to write a book with lots of characters, and I wanted to break out of my previous approach, which was, you know, to be locked into one central character in a, in a fairly unerring way. So I wanted to, you know, broaden the range. Um, but I wasn't finding the right tone of voice for that, um, or the right way to transition um, from one character to another. Um, and then, you know, uh, fortuitously, I was offered the chance to write a couple of drafts of a film script, which I did as a and a certain kind of experiment, I guess, and also because I needed the money, which took me away from the book for about eight months. And when I returned to it um, on the very same day that I left the film project, the voice, if you like, of uh, cinema was still very much with me. And the voice of cinema is a, you know, a different one to prose because you have to think about where the camera's looking and what the camera's perceiving. Um, and it just very, very suddenly in a flash came to me that... I could uh, indulge that same kind of freedom of movement um, in language. So I started to sort of play with that, cutting, as it were, in a single sentence or paragraph from one point of view to another, one character to another. And it had to do really, um, firstly, with the theme of the book or the buried theme of the book, which for me is time and the passage of time. Um, I think in the great flow of time you know no one character uh, really is more important than any other you or i um the prime minister a dog walking down the street we're all present in the same moment as it were um secondly i was excited by it because it allowed me to conjure a sense of many voices operating at the same time which felt truer to me about south africa than um you know a narrative that was grounded in one or two particular people. South Africa is a country that's, you know, for obvious reasons, very, very fractured. We're a chorus, a discordant chorus, um, but it, it would have felt wrong uh, to try to establish one voice that speaks for the whole country, because I don't think any voice can do that. If we're talking about the camera analogy or whatever, there are kind of pieces to camera um, where you suddenly, disarmingly um, kind of address us directly, or your narrator rather, addresses us directly. Um, which is very playful and you have a lot of fun with it. Would you, how would you characterize that kind of, that extra character, that, that, because I think you've you've spoken about the narrative voice as, you know, 
as almost a kind of another character, particularly when it's addressing us. Is it is it a, is it a, a hopeful person, an angry person, a resigned person, or, or, or the whole <laughs> the whole panoply? The best way I can answer that, I guess, is is to say that in a in a more traditional narrative, a third person narrative, you you would still have a narrator, um, but you you're probably expected to make that narrator um, as unobtrusive as possible. You you want you want the reader to feel that they're looking at the action through a pane of glass. But if you're going to jump around in the way that I do um, with such sort of abandon, it's, it's very, very hard to make the narrator unobtrusive because it's the narrator that's carrying you from one point of view to another. So it seemed to me um, it made more sense to actually uh, heighten the presence of the narrator and, and make them an intrusive, you know, um, obtrusive presence. Um, and to play with that. I mean, it's something that began unconsciously, but the, you know, the conscious understanding that I came to of, of how and why I was working in that way um, is that, you know, all stories are told by somebody. Um, even if you try and hide that narrator, there is somebody telling that story. Um, so there's a, there's a sleight of hand, a certain artificiality um, in telling a story, which involves trying to persuade the reader that, you know, essentially this fiction, um, which never happened. These people never did these things. You're trying to persuade a reader that these things did happen and that these things really are true. Um, You know, other art forms, uh, painting, uh, cinema, theater, have long, long played with uh, drawing attention to the fact that their medium is artificial. Um, The novel, much less so. I mean, there there are examples of it, but most novels um, tend to avoid that. Anyway, I decided to throw myself into that and um, to try to draw the reader's attention to the fact that they are actually being told a story. Um, so, in fact, to come back to your question in a more focused way, I felt the narrator not always to be the same person necessarily. Mm, that's um, so, so sometimes um, the tone is sympathetic, um, sometimes it's sardonic, um, and then t- at, at other times, especially those moments when the narrator, as it were, wheels around and points a finger you know, uh, out of the book at the reader, it's sometimes accusing. Um, sometimes it's perhaps not even a human presence. Um, you know, uh, there, there are moments when the narrator will say something about, um, you know, human behavior and then, and then make an observation like, yeah, this person's doing this as many of you do, as if, you know, the narrator himself, itself, uh, doesn't behave in that way. So, yeah, I, I, I was not trying to hold a fixed center. I was trying to move the center all the time and perhaps to wrong foot the reader into wondering, who is this? What is this? Where is this voice coming from? You know, essentially to draw attention to the fact that a story is an artificial construction uh, and that whoever's telling it to you is telling it to you in a particular way. One person that the that this this sort of narrator keeps slightly away from, or keeps, or, or that you, as as author, keeps slightly side stage, is the person who this promise has been made to. You know, in a way, she is the centre of the book, and in a way, she very much isn't. This is the the the, the maid Salome, uh, who has essentially been promised um, a property on the farm, hasn't she? The, the Lombard place, and you've kept her deliberately off stage. Um, I think it's extremely effective. This, the way you've done this. It has received some criticism, this decision. Um, there was a piece in the LRB by Adam Mars Jones, who seemed a bit perplexed by what he called the thinness of Salome's presence, um, which he sort of felt sat uneasily in the context of, 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 of this sort of wide angled look at all the other characters, the way that you dip into all the other characters. What, what would you say in response to that? I mean, I know what I'd say, but what, what would you say in response to that? Yeah. Um... It's, it's about the South African situation, essentially. Uh, obviously, I could have gone into the minds of various black characters in the same way that I have done with the white characters. I could have inhabited them and, you know, enumerated their thoughts and feelings in exactly the same way. But that would, in a certain sense, um, have normalized the situation. In other words, you know, um, in terms of this narrative voice, all characters are equal. Well, we're all on the same footing. Um, you know, Salome sits at the center of the story. So, you know, she's obviously a much more significant figure. Um, If I had simply, you know, uh, spoken from inside her in the way that I do with the others, she would effectively have been just another 
character in the book, just another presence. My logic was that if I spoke from outside her and only sort of went into her being as far as the white characters around her perceive her, that you would get a sense um, of how South African society operates. Um, you know, white people don't perceive black people um, as fully human in a, in a general way. I mean, that is changing um, to some degree. But, but the fact is that for somebody like Salome, in the new South Africa, 27 years into democracy, nothing very much has changed. She's an uneducated rural black woman with very little to her name. Um, and essentially, she has no voice at all in South African society. And if you like, that is at the heart of um, the problem with the so-called new South Africa, that it has failed to transform the life of somebody like that. Um, in a literary sense, um, I realize, you know, it, it can read as problematic because, you know, the well-made novel does give every, every character's sensibility. But I, I wanted to make it a problem for the reader. I wanted to make the reader aware that there's, there is this absence, there is this blank space and a lack of a voice. And in the same way that you might wonder, you know, why, who is the narrator and why is this narration leaping around in this particular way? Um, I wanted the reader to wonder why does the narrator never go there? Why, why is that an empty space? And if that leaves the reader with a problem at the end of the book, so much the better. Uh, I mistrust books that, you know, solve, solve their own problems. <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, yeah, I found that, I found that deeply problem, problematic in, in a very <laughs> instructive and fruitful way. I toyed with the idea of perhaps holding... Uh, Salome's interior life back until right at the end of the book and then, you know, um, kind of opening the floodgates on it and, and letting, uh, letting her inner life speak. Um, I decided not to do that in favor of um, the narrator at a very, very crucial moment at the end, suddenly wheeling around and doing one of those finger pointing moments at the reader and saying, if you know nothing about this person, perhaps it's because, you know, you, you didn't want to know, you didn't care to ask. So I hope that's, uh, you know, the kind of uncomfortable moment on, on which uh, Salome's silence suddenly speaks. Absolutely. And you, you even talk about the house, this house that's been, again, the, the, the Lombard place, the, the, the promise, the thing that has been promised at the centre of the book. And you realise, well, we realise because you suddenly tell us that you haven't described it and we haven't really thought about what it is and what it looks like and the interiors and all the rest of it. And yeah, I think that's... I think that works brilliantly well. There are a couple more things that I'd like to ask you about. One of them is religion. It features quite prominently in this novel. You've got Rachel, who's, who's Jewish and goes back to her Jewish roots. And you've, you've got Mani, who um, sort of becomes more and more religious as he gets older. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit more widely about how religion in the novel is, is connected to the kind of the wider politics of it, the wider experience of apartheid and post-apartheid South Africa. Um... Well, you know, I mean, apartheid itself was underpinned by a very severe form of Calvinism, uh, which was drummed into us when I was growing up. Um, so I certainly wanted to conjure that as an element in the book. And I mean, South Africa now, particularly Cape Town, where I live, has given way to a kind of very um, loosely rational form of new ageism. But on a much more practical level, you know, I, I decided to tell the story through the device of these four funerals. Um, and there's nothing more boring than repeating yourself. Um, so, you know, uh, to repeat four funerals all in, in the confines of the same religion would have been a dull prospect for me and probably for the reader. <laughs> so I really just shook it up by approaching it from, you know, different religious vantage points. And you get the new ageism in the, in the final funeral, don't you? The, um, uh, I do. I do. Yeah, I, I had some fun with that. You, you, you had a lot of fun with that. And it's, yeah, it's, well, we won't give anything away, but it's, um, yeah, I, 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 I loved all that stuff. It was very on the nose and very amusing. Let's talk about um, the continent of Africa more generally. And I, and I say that partly because you dedicated your book, A Win, um, I think, to the writers of Africa, saying, I hope people will take African writing a little bit more seriously now. And it, it, has, it has actually been an amazing few months for African fiction. On the, on the same night you won the book, the Senegalese novelist Mohamed Mbouga Saar won the, the Prix Goncourt. Um, this year's Booker International Prize went to a French Senegalese novelist, David Diop. Obviously, the Nobel Prize a few weeks ago went to the Tanzani uh, Tanzanian novelist Abdul Razak Gurna. Um, he was the first black African to win it since Wallace Iinka in 1986. So it's been, it's been an incredibly exciting time for African fiction. You know, if one can even refer to a, a body of fiction under such a kind of large umbrella crude term. 
Um, which contemporary African writers do you think we should be reading? Oh, no, that's that's a very tricky that's a very <laughs> tricky question, and I'm I'm going to sidestep it because um, they, I would inevitably be leaving a lot of names um, off it. I would also be revealing how woefully underread I am myself in African fiction, to be honest. Um, partly, that's you know part of the problem. Um, if 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 it is a problem, um, lies in the fact that there are relatively speaking very few African publishers. I mean, South Africa is better off than most, but you know, north of South Africa, with the exception of Nigeria, uh, there are many countries that really really have very, provide very few options to their writers about, about for an outlet, and also very few booksellers, which means that the onus falls on Europe and you know the West. Um, to, to provide a platform for African writers. You know, that's problematic in all sorts of ways because essentially, you know, your voice is being exported and packaged and then sold back to you from a, from a distance. Um, my hope, this isn't the question you asked me. I, I realize I'm, I'm not answering directly. <laughs> that's but, fine. <laughs> but, but my hope is that, um, you know, the, the kind of attention that suddenly come to African writing um, will, not, will not only bring more uh, Western readers to it, but will bring more African readers to their own writing um, and perhaps, you know, uh, inspire more African uh, states to invest in their storytellers because there's certainly no, no lack of storytelling. It's, it's about how to get it out there. Well, I very much hope that, um, that this win helps to encourage that along with all the other great things that have been going on um, in the continent in, in recent months. I'm extremely grateful for your patience and generosity and your time uh, and congratulations, Damon. Thank you, Toby, and thanks for your time and trouble. I very much appreciate this conversation. The novelist Damon Galgut talking to Toby Leshtig. Still to come on the show, 60-odd years of Beatles lyrics and what happened in Russia in the 1830s. Everything, it seems. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you will never miss an episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, before we dive into some lesser charted waters of Russian history, do you want to know a secret? Two Pauls have come together on a project that will bring a taste of honey to many music fans. Ask me why I'm talking in this cryptic way and I'll apologise. I'm a loser, let it be, and tell you it's because the poet Paul Muldoon and the Beatle Paul McCartney have put together a collection of McCartney's favourite lyrics written by him with commentary, etc. Lucy Dallas went along to the Royal Festival Hall to hear them discuss it and will now help by telling us every little thing we need to know. Lucy, a fine Beatlesy name, uh, save me from myself and fill us in on what's just, going on. Yeah, someone's got to stop you, Fear. It's only my great, great professional respect that hasn't stopped me jumping in earlier. I think someone's got to write in and see how many they spotted. Okay. In yeah. That. How yes. many did you spot? How many How many Beatles tracks did you spot? I can see the spot? script, so I, I know how many there were. Some of them <laughs> stuck out more than others, I'm going to yeah. say. Some were more painful to wrap in. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> okay, so what's going on? So there's a, a book um, just, just out called The Lyrics, Paul McCartney's Lyrics, and the, the book is edited uh, by Paul Muldoon, friend of the podcast, who's been on quite a few times, reading his own wonderful poems. Um, and this was an evening with Paul McCartney and Paul Muldoon, chaired by Samira Ahmed at the Royal Festival Hall. Um, and Paul McCartney hasn't been at the Royal Festival Hall before. And I really? think he hasn't. How's yeah, that no, possible? Not. I don't know, but he hasn't. They read out a list of the, the wonderful people who had been there and then went, but Paul McCartney's never been here. And he, I think he hasn't done a live event for a couple of years. But um, it was an extraordinary evening, actually. And it was really... Um, it was really palpable. There's not that many events you go to where you can actually really feel it. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. But, but it was, everyone was really excited. I mean, a bit overexcited, some of us. <laughs> and uh, and it was really interesting because the audience were lots. I thought it might just be oldies, you know, like me and older. But um, there was lots and lots of all sorts of people. How did the two Pauls, how have they ended up working together on this? I don't know quite. They sort of said that the, the, the publishers, I think, sort of approached them sort of separately and then put them together. And I think what happened is they've, they've been having these rather long kind of uh, sessions over a few years where they, you know, where they they talk through the lyrics. Um, and Paul Muldoon, as I say, has, has edited them. Um, I haven't seen the book. Uh, we will have a review of the book forthcoming um, in, the, in the TLS in a bit, but I haven't actually seen the book yet. I suppose it um, helps that Paul Muldoon's a musician as well, isn't he? Yes, yeah, and he knows he knows all about lyric writing and songwriting, and he's in, and he sort of injects the, you know, the literary stuff into it. I think, and that's that's also right. what he was doing, and and saying what his what Paul McCartney's strengths were as a as a lyric writer. You know, that who's very good at visualization and very uh-huh. good at uh, drama. He said they're like little mm. plays because mm. he said. He said, "You often have um, you. You only need two characters. Sometimes you you can have more, but you only need two. He said, one character is a poem, two characters is a play, and often you get you know at least two characters in these songs. Mm. Um, and yeah, and he um, but and Samira Ahmed was sort of asking Paul McCartney well about all sorts of things. The thing is, it's difficult in the end not just to say to Paul McCartney, Carl, what was it like being in the Beatles?'" <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just really, you know, it's difficult to avoid that. So there was sure. there was a bit of that as well. But did it, I mean, did it all feel quite, you know, candid? Did you get a sense of of, of a real chemistry between, I keep on wanting to say the two poles. But it is the two poles. And also my notes are a bit confusing because I've put PM. I started writing PM and then realised that's no good. So I have <laughs> that to doesn't help at all. P, McC and PM. And also brilliantly. So it was, so it was um, signed throughout and live streamed and you can also watch it mm-hmm. uh, on a live stream I think for a couple of days still um okay sign up and watch it then there were two people signing it and they were both called Paul as well really? they must have done that on purpose it was a prerequisite yeah absolutely yeah so that was nice and so were there were there readings before I mean you say he didn't have a guitar but performances of 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 these lyrics somehow not really no No. they didn't really do readings they they played about three very very short clips of of three of his songs um which just made everyone go oh (laughs) and look at him hopefully in case he did feel like singing anything he did he would kind of you know just like sing a line here or there but they didn't really do readings they just they did just sort of talk about about 
about kind of uh, about where the songs came from, about nostalgia, about why um, why he he's sort of seemed to have been indulging in nostalgia since he was since he was young. He's got a sort of synesthesia. Do you know that he's mm. got different colours for days of the week? Oh, really? Yeah, I know what they are. Go on, Do you want to quiz me? Yeah. What's Wednesday? Wednesday is green. And how about Tuesday? Yellow. Let's have Thursday. Thursday's a nice one, dark blue. Oh. So, yeah, so that's good, isn't it? I mean, it's, that's nothing to do with anything, or maybe it is. But he um, feels presumably that that, in, that informs the way that he conceives of, 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 of the lyrics. I suppose if we're talking about, you know, narratives and, and play-like uh, lyrics the color will come in 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 terms of the mood and 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 the general tone of the piece I don't know he didn't sort of dwell on it he didn't seem to say that it had uh, influenced anything else particularly that's just one of those interesting things when you have a glimpse into how someone else's Mm. mind works and you go wow Mm. okay for me Tuesday's not yellow but that you know that's interesting um and they talked about his um English teacher so his English teacher was taught by F.R. Leavis at um university and um Paul Muldoon was saying that you know he thought that that he got he got a very good grammar school education and you know and that that was probably um quite influential for him paul mccartney said he was a great teacher because he started reading chaucer and everyone was going you know what, what we're doing this for sir and so his english teacher said to them read the miller's tale and then they all poked up a bit and they were all quite interested in it did you come away knowing anything, you know, or, or better appreciating anything? Or, or was there a particular story behind one of the songs that that you'll, you know, you'll you'll remember forever? I don't want to sound too soppy, but it was a surprisingly moving evening, actually. It was it was I mean, it, it wasn't like a church service, but it wasn't just like a it wasn't like a reading either Mm. and and he was really nice he wasn't he's been uh, people have got at him a bit for being too kind of cheery fab maca fab maca wacky thumbs aloft Mm. but he was really nice and funny and he didn't seem to be um you know sort of trying to construct a persona as it were it was absolutely lovely can I just say one thing that irks me about um just looking at the title of the book because I feel we've been far too positive um one thing that irks <laughs> I can't me, help it <laughs> and it may just be that I've I've misread it but um it's called the lyrics 1956 to the present which suggests that it spans a 65 year period when surely it should be 64 oh. do you think they missed a trick there uh, no because it's not a theme park Thea it's just it's just <laughs> real life <laughs> no I don't know it's I have so to... close and it's about a thousand pages long I think this book so there's two I think I think there are two volumes and oh, it's also really? got lots of archival stuff it's got pictures of him looking rosy cheeked when he's you know 15 playing with John and George and you oh. know in someone's front room yeah it is it is really it's it's really lovely well uh then needless to reiterate after all that excitement the book lyrics 1956 to the present will be reviewed in a forthcoming issue of the TLS now, I could here perhaps attempt some kind of segue into back in the USSR, but I'm not going to go there, especially after uh, Thea's earlier performance. Yeah, sorry, I think I exhausted <laughs> everyone, including myself. So what I'll do instead is draw your attention to a piece we're running this week that takes us way back beyond the days of the USSR to the 1830s, when, according to a new book, 1837, Russia's Quiet Revolution by Paul W. Wirth, a period of striking dynamism, innovation and consequence carried Russia through a set of transformations that introduced new institutions, novel conceptions and unprecedented experiences. The idea is that without understanding this historical moment, we stand little chance of understanding the country we face today. Douglas Smith, whose books include a biography of Rasputin and The Russian Job, the forgotten story of how America saved the Soviet Union from famine, has reviewed the book and joins us now from Seattle to tell us more. Douglas, hello. Many thanks for coming. Hi. Wonderful to be here. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to let you know we are in the midst of a remarkable windstorm. So if you hear strange things buffeting around uh, and Hopefully no screams or anything like that. I'll be able to make it through our conversation. <laughs> okay, well, that will add even more excitement. <laughs> Do let us know if a cow goes sailing past Yeah, the okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, going to, 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 um, to Paul Worth's book, the specificity is what really catches the eye here. 
when I was uh, made aware of the book and asked to review it, I was sort of like, okay, how is he going to make this work? So I think he caught probably everybody, even uh, the most seasoned Russian experts uh, off guard with, with the title and the concept of the book. What was happening in Russia in this decade? What, what areas and new developments does he, does he cover? How does he make the argument? Well, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to think about is that, you know, the, the period of, uh, of Nicholas I from 1825 to 1855 has long uh, been thought of as this um, uh, several decades of stagnation, of repression, of literally uh, Russia being frozen in a giant block of ice to prevent any contamination from the developments of, of going on in, in Western Europe. Um, and this understanding of Russia under Nicholas I um, as this, you know, repressive regime is perhaps most famously recorded uh, in a book by the Marquis de Custine, the, the French aristocrat who traveled there and wrote a book called Russia in 1839, which became sort of the standard work for for understanding not only the, the rush of Nicholas I, but almost a guidebook to understanding the deep uh, cultural patterns of, of Russia itself. It was even being read by um, Russian experts in the United States during the Cold War as a way to sort of understand the Soviet system. Um, so what, what Worth does is he comes along and he tries to sort of rubbish this whole longstanding notion of, of, of the stagnant years of Nicholas I. And what he does is he highlights a number of things that were going on um, in the 1830s, um, he bookends his work with uh, sort of two tragedies, the first being the, the death of Alexander Pushkin at the duel in January of 1837. Then he ends with the horrific fire that burned the Winter Palace to the ground in December of that year. And then he looks at several things in between those uh, two horrific dates that suggest to him what he calls a quiet revolution going on. And all of you can you can run the gamut from sort of the first railroad that was started that year to the opera uh, A Life for the Tsar by by Glinka, um, and he has other things dealing with sort of uh, peasant reform, the attempt to invade and control the Khanate of Hiva in Central Europe, all of which he suggests shows there was a great deal of dynamism, and he even suggests, as I said before, a revolution that is was taking place at the time. One of the developments that you mention um, has to do with some writings on on the nature of Russia uh, and its relationship with the West. You say uh, these writings shocked literate society and unleashed a debate still reverberating. And um, what what are those writings specifically, or is it more a question, you know, a general uh, mood? Well, the most famous would be uh, by the writer Shadayev, who wrote uh, the fam- famous philosophical letters, in which he argued that basically Russia had had nothing to offer the world, never did have anything to offer the world, um, which went off sort of like, you know, a, a meteor in the night, um, caught everybody's attention, um, led to, you know, sort of the, the shockwave that helped to lead to the famous and still basically ongoing disagreements between Westernizers in Russia and Slavophiles, those who thought Russia's path forward lay in adopting the habits, cultures, traits of Western Europe, and those who insist that no, Russia is unique, it's its own distinctive civilization and needs to follow its own path, the so-called Slavophiles. And this distinction sort of echoes even down to today, although obviously in highly modified uh, and refashioned forms. Shadayev, um, after writing and publishing the philosophical letter, was uh, deemed insane by the authorities, um, which is, again, one of these longstanding patterns you might see in Russian culture. But this is, again, proof that Worth would hold up as as the dynamism um, that is going on in the Russia of Nicholas I and and undermines the notion that it was this period of, of, of stagnation. That was an author who kind of shocked everyone by uh, by writing this. The culture is very important, isn't it? I mean, you say that you mentioned the politics and, and there's religion and there's technology, but the, as you mentioned, the birth of of the sort of nationalist music and also Pushkin, who, who whose importance can't really be overstated, can it? No, exactly. Um, you know, he becomes sort of uh, the iconic poem poet for all of Russia, 
um, symbol of Russian uh, Russian greatness. Um, and much of this is going on in the in the you know well Pushkin obviously dies a dozen years or so into the reign of Nicholas I. But it shows the ferment. It shows the intellectual creativity despite what was clearly a repressive period in Russian history. Um, but in a way that probably shouldn't be anything that is terribly earth shattering because obviously, you know, even uh, dark days of Stalin, um, you know, Akhmatova's writing, Konstantin uh, Paustovsky is writing, um, you, you have, you know, work that is being created, uh, amazing literature of the highest category that can still be created even amidst the most repressive of conditions. Mm. And and Pushkin, am I right about this? He promoted the use of the Russian language, didn't he, despite being fluent in French, as all the Russian nobility were. Was 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 there already now a turn away from French towards Russian? Uh, definitely. I think what you have in the early 19th century is, again, this search for a Russian national idiom, for a Russian truly Russian national modes of expression in, in, in the arts. Um, and you see it also here with, um, with uh, Glinka's uh, opera, Life of the Tsar, that, that Worth talks about. But definitely, you know, it's important to, to recognize that, that these conversations are happening even earlier, uh, particularly in the reign of Catherine the Great, who uh, was on the throne from 1762 to 1796, you really do begin to see Russians, educated Russians, which is still obviously a tiny portion of the population at this point, beginning to debate and to think about who are we as a people? What does it mean to be Russian? What is our relationship to the West? Um, Oftentimes, you know, in in the reign of Catherine, these conversations may be going on in the French language, um, but still, you 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 see this development of a national consciousness in the 18th century. But it's only really uh, in the early part of the 19th century where you really begin to see uh, a more clearly defined Russian uh, national identity taking shape. And very much of it is is due to the work of of you know poets like like Pushkin who really create sort of the modern literary language that becomes the standard and is very much tied up then with notions of, of national identity. And, and there was an, an important religious development too, wasn't there? And did that, did that, that development, did that tie in with uh, a kind of a broader expansion of, of empire at the time? Well, right. Uh, Worth um, talks about how you have the, the, the sort of westward expansion of Russian orthodoxy into the Polish territories and where the, the, um, the Uniates, believers of the Uniates, which is sort of like a strange sort of mix of orthodoxy and Catholicism, are brought in to the official Russian Orthodox Church. And I think he adds, I forget the exact number, but something like one and a half million of these Uniates or Greek Catholics become members of the Orthodox Church, which he sees as, again, part of the the expansion of the empire and the integration of some of the territories around the central core of Russia into um, the Romanov, uh, Romanov Empire. And he discusses it with the, with the church as one example. And then he also discusses it uh, when he talks about the attempt to subjugate uh, Hiva in Central Asia. Um, and you, you were talking about the, the two tragedies um, that kind of that bookended 1837 or Worth talks about them. So there's Pushkin who dies in the of the duel at the beginning, and the, and the Winter Palace burns down. But it wasn't really the burning down of the Winter Palace um, that he takes as symbolic, was it? No, no, because what he 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 writes about in the book is as you said exactly less the fact that the the Winter Palace burned down, fire of, of this nature being endemic to Russia throughout its history but more the speed with which it was rebuilt, you know, over a course of I don't know, less than two years, if I remember correctly. And it was a schedule that was put forward by uh, the Tsar himself, and no one seemed to believe that it would be possible. So it was the fact that Russians were able to rebuild the Winter Palace so quickly, um, defying everyone's sort of expectations, especially the expectations of foreigners, which uh, acted as sort of a shot in the arm to, again, Russian pride, uh, Russian national self-confidence and what have you. This is what Worth sees as, as mm-hmm. crucial to this. It's oh, it's... Look, at, look at what we can do. Yes, look what we can do. Look what, I mean, it reminds me, the, uh, there's a 
famous uh, short story by Leskov called Lev Shah in Russian. And it's about, uh, you know, how, how Russian blacksmiths can work magic that, that no foreigner can begin to understand. And it, it sort of speaks to that, to that same notion that uh, we Russians can, can find a way to outdo uh, and surpass the expectations, expectations which are often maybe rather low of, of Westerners. I see. So it's a sort of arc. So it's, de- it's the death of Pushkin. What are we going to do? This is a complete disaster. And then by the end of it, it's we're kind of superhuman. We can do things that, that nobody thought. It's like a kind of regeneration almost. Is that the narrative? Yeah, I think that's definitely at the core of, of Worth's book. Um, but at the, one of the things that I found in, you know, uh, interesting, because when I first picked up the book and saw the title and the concept, I was I was uh, very intrigued by it. And I think a lot of readers would be. But you notice very quickly on um, that 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 the author backtracks from from the stated proposition at the beginning because he says, well, actually, when I say 1837, I, I really mean the quadrennium of 1836 to 1839. Um, but I figured that that was a bad way to try to market a book or sell it to a publisher. Um, and then he backtracks a bit more in the introduction and says, well, in fact, what I'm really talking about is the decade of the 1830s, because some of these events really don't even happen uh, in, in 1837. Um, the campaign against Kiva doesn't get started until a year or two after 1837. Glinka's uh, opera premieres in 1836. Um, so there's a bit of fudge factor going on here, but still I applaud the effort. And, and you so can't, we can't deny that many a history book has been sold on the basis of a very specific date in its title. <laughs> Exactly. I'm trying to think of one right now for my next book. I don't know. <laughs> so, so you can just, you call it you know, whatever it is and then go, actually, I don't really mean that. I mean about 10 years ago. <laughs> well, it got but me you- thinking because there's probably a lot of other decades that, because if we're going to say, okay, actually, I'm going to talk about the 1830s as a decade. That got me thinking, I bet, you know, you could maybe find a decade in the reign of, of uh, Catherine the Great um, that would hold all sorts of possibilities for, quiet revolutions to use his term i guess what would not work with a book like that is you would expect that from catherine the great's reign which is famous for its innovations its Mm. novelties um and that kind of thing whereas it is safe to say that the reign of nicholas the first is not typically known for those sorts of things and so um finally are you are you are you convinced by the thesis is it an important book has it moved things along do you think I think it's, I like it. I will say I like the book because it kind of comes out of left field. Uh, It forces us to rethink long held notions uh, about the period, whether or not this all adds up to a quiet revolution. I'm not a hundred percent convinced, but I like it because I think it spawns conversation could lead to further research um, and um, maybe can kind of, get us out of certain old habits of thought that would not be bad to shake. Mm, and mm-hmm. perhaps it does give us some more of those early building blocks, uh, you know, in terms of trying to understand uh, the Russian psyche, collective psyche today. Definitely. I think, I think you're definitely right. And I also like this, I, the notion of, of trying to think about, about all the things that can be happening kind of maybe on even a, somewhat of an underground level that are, that are leading to change and new developments that uh, maybe won't fully appear until a bit later. I mean, it, this book made me think a lot about Brezhnev and the, what the Russians call Vremya Zastoya, the era of stagnation, where it seemed like nothing was happening. But obviously there was a good deal going on beneath the surface. And, I, and so in a way, I think you could maybe even maybe sort of draw some sort of parallels if you wanted between those two, those two eras. Mm, food, food for thought there. Um, Dr. Smith, thank you very much for joining us from a windswept Seattle. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to damon galgut toby lishtig and douglas smith and i suppose indirectly to paul mccartney and paul muldoon too thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by sophia franklin we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.